Major League Baseball season's finally here, getting a slightly later start while the League and Players Association hammered out a new collective bargaining agreement. The Los Angeles Dodgers are the betting favorite to win the 2022 World Series with the Chicago White Sox, among several other contenders. Which brings us to this week's podcast guest, Sox manager Tony La Russa. When I sat down with him in Oakland in November 2019, La Russa's phone was blowing up as people congratulated him on taking a front office job with the Los Angeles Angels. At the time, he hinted at returning to managing, so it's interesting to look back at those comments now that he's in the dugout once again. I missed the immediacy of the game. I missed the whole thing of pulling the team together from day one, making him a true brotherhood. During our conversation, the former athletics and Cardinals skipper also reflected on his playing days. There's a saying that the worst players make the best managers. Address the steroid era. Fans don't trust. Uh, they don't trust any of us. And shared regrets as a father. It's a mistake that's unexplainable, inexcusable, screwed up. But first, we hear LaRussa on life growing up near Tampa, Florida. Your parents uh, met in a local cigar factory. Uh, before they had you and your sister, uh, what were their backgrounds? Uh, my mom is of Spanish descent. My dad's Sicilian. I think in our families, they were born in the United States. Most of their you know, brothers and sisters, mother and dad, were born in either Spain and for that reason, on my bucket list, I'd like to visit Spain and, and uh, Sicily. and haven't had a chance to do it yet. Uh, you grew up in Tampa. Uh, Spanish was the language spoken first at your house because it was that of your mom's and uh, grandma. What do you recall from the apartment your family lived in above the service station growing up? When I was three or four years old, we moved into a housing project. Uh, it was a little small. And from there, we moved into this uh, above a service station on Columbus Drive and 12th Street, Ybor City. It was a service uh, uh, fire station right across the street, which you know, as a kid, you know, every time they, the bell started blowing and you know, the sirens started, you know, thought that was a big adventure. Uh, your dad, when you got to middle school, he became a, a dairy uh, delivery man. Um, how did that change the family's financial situation? You know, and not, not a lot. You know, my dad had worked uh, at you know, a wholesome bakery as a, as a baker. Before that, he used to drive the, uh, the old ice truck. He's always doing physically demanding labor. Uh, I remember when he went to, f to work for Florida Dairy, it was a family-owned dairy. Sunday was his day off. You know, I, I'm not handy at all. And other, other dads taught their sons how to fix this and that. I never begrudged it because my dad worked so hard on Sunday, man, he just like getting ready for the next six days. The thing I remember the most, besides how hard he worked and, and never complained, just did it, was that the family that owned the dairy when my father passed told me that he was the most honest employee he had ever had. What do you think he taught you? Mostly I remember him just really working hard when I was 10, we found a, uh, a two-bedroom home in, in uh, West Tampa. Uh, a block away was a, a, a playground, McFarland Park, during the summer, every day. All the guys in the neighborhood, you know, we got there at 9, and we stayed till 5 playing pickup games. And when you ran out of uh, baseballs, sometimes you would uh, 
like steal the balls that uh, would get hit out of the nearby park and you'd get chased off by the security guard, right? We were just borrowing, borrowing them. We were going to return them. Except by the time we returned them, they, they threw them away and then we got them. We got them. <laughs> there you go. But uh, the security guard was, there was, uh, he'd come running after us, you know, and he'd keep you on. He said, I know your parents. I'm going to tell your parents you can't get away with this. And we'd run away and hide from them and then watch the game. And, you know, he never followed up. The, the last question about your dad, there's a story I think you recall one day being on the delivery truck with him um, where you two have a heart-to-heart -heart about your future and what he hopes you can achieve. What do you remember him saying? I can remember that uh, I know how hard he worked, and, and we, we had what we needed. We didn't have a lot of extras. Uh, he had a 52 Chevy that... that uh, I was kidding around when I had my first date. I borrowed it, you know, and it smelled like old milk. <laughs> so I threw Old Spice on it. <laughs> and the girl's hanging out the window because that combination was atrocious. <laughs> but uh, I offered, as I was going to high school, you know, to spend time during the summer working. And he told me, he said, look, as long as you're serious about your studies and you're pursuing your, this baseball career, then, you know, we're okay. I didn't have to work, <clears throat> but he made it clear that I wasn't getting a free pass, could not neglect the studies and could ne neglect, you know, the opportunity that I had. Because it, it, as it turned out, his brothers would always tell me that when he was growing up, he was a real good looking catcher. And they always thought that he could be like Al Lopez, but his dad would never let him play. And he was going to make sure I had the opportunity. So the, the, the one thing that he agreed okay was in my uh, three years in high school. And, you know, I would go out Friday night, like most young kids. But Saturday morning, about uh, 5 o'clock, uh, he'd come by in his truck and, he, and he'd pick me up. And I'd do the rest of the route. Uh, I know he appreciated it, but it was a, a small price to pay for the opportunities that uh, he and my mother, and you know, she was, it's been told, you know, at that uh, place on above the service stage, there was an alley with rocks, and she would throw me balls, and I'm catching ground balls. So I used to have pretty good hands and got used to catching bad hops because I'd take the ball off the rocks, but she'd play catch with me by the hour. So wonderful, wonderful mother and father. It was only Hall of Famer Robin Yount, uh, Alex Rodriguez, and yourself uh, that started at shortstop in, in the big leagues at 18 years old. I explain, though, how... A softball game with friends oh. forever altered the course of your career. And you at the time were top prospect coming out. You had like a $100,000 package, which is huge at the time. They're giving you a car, paying for uh, education. and yeah. So uh, that first year, it's in the book, you know, I hit 250, about 44 times, got 11 hits. Every first pitch fastball, I swung at it, I got 11 hits. So. You know, they thought I was going to be, and who knows? I think if I'd had a, a, a healthy arm, uh, I could have been a decent utility player in the major league. I wouldn't have been a star. So I went, and all my high school buddies, we, we had slow-pitch softball. Uh, we called it, it was called Flop League. You play on Thursday night and Sunday afternoons. And I can remember one time I was having dinner, and we were playing that day at McFarland Park across the street. And, you know, it got late. It was kind of cold and, and rainy a little bit. And I ran out there, got there just as the first pitch. So I, I just literally got out of the car, 
right in my position, first ball's in the hole, like, oh, yeah, I throw it. Ooh. So tore that tendon. And in those days, all they did was put you in a sling. So to this day, if you touch it in a scar tissue, it hurts. And for the rest of my career, I went from, you know, having a good arm to flipping the ball from here. They moved me to second base. And as I got into coaching and I could see how an infielder that had limitations throwing, I'm surprised. I, you know, I sat at the bench in the big leagues for two or three years at times. I'd have never given me a job. If you can't throw, you can't throw. You spent a lot of time in the minors for uh, the 16 years you played, 12 of those off seasons, uh, you were always getting your education, going to school. Um, why? Well, the first one, the night that I graduated um, from high school, I was 17 years old, June. <clears throat> those days, no draft. So all the teams that were interested could come to the house. So there were, at that time, I don't know, those 16, 17, 18 teams make an offer. Uh, I had a scholarship offer from Florida State. And my mother wanted me to do that. She was big into education. It would have been a great opportunity. I had a guy named Danny Litweiler that was a legendary coach. Looking back, it's, you know, I, I can't. You know, the money was helpful, helped us. But if you just took the money aside, it would have been better because I would have matured. The only credit I do, I did and I do give myself for my professional career was I must have loved the game. I had toughness I didn't know because my first six years, five years, I broke stuff. Dislocated my shoulder twice, got cracked in my knee, tore muscle in my back, had this with the arm. And I played another 10 years. So why? Because I loved it and, you know, I could deal with the pain. But the deal with the night that they offered the bonus, my dad and me, we, I wanted to sign, he wanted me to sign. The, uh, my, my mother wanted me to go to school. So there was a college scholarship uh, uh, portion as part of the deal. And I promised her that I would go to college. Looking back, I, you know, I was taught right. You make a commitment, which is a promise. I made a promise, so I did it. But uh, I remember a lot of times driving, you know, trying to stay awake, going to the ballpark or from school. And then the last part was a law school, and I realized I wasn't going to make it, and I needed to get another career. Got it. In your uh, long time, second wife, uh, Elaine, was telling me the other day when I was talking to her, you guys moved something like 57 times because you were playing one place during the year, off season, you were at school, bouncing around. And by Elaine's accounts, you guys were borderline destitute, poor, um, certainly couldn't travel, couldn't buy a house. Um, what did that teach you? When I started law school in 73, I played two more years and then I played three years as a player coach. So during those law school years, I mean, we wouldn't go to a mall because Elaine said, you know, why go to a mall and I feel like I want that dress or this dress. So we stayed away from the mall. So, you know, we had nothing extra. But the investment was to be an attorney. And there are a lot of times, I'm not sure what she told you, but she thought she was marrying a lawyer, not a, a manager. But... Um, Did she really believe that at the time? Yeah, I believed it too. Except in 79, you know, in that second year in AAA, the opportunity of the White Sox came. And Mr. Vex said, I won't give you this job in 80 unless you take the bar. Because, you know, I, I'd have bet everything I owned that I'd have been a lawyer. I mean, I, I, I never knew I was going to survive 30 plus years. Nobody knew. And if I could back up momentarily, <clears throat> when times were tight, um, what did that teach you about money and savings? Well, 
when you ain't got it, you can't spend it. Then the, uh, the beautiful part about Elaine is, it wasn't like she was uh, raised with all the niceties and a lot of the luxuries. So we, we were well aware we had been raised where, you know, you have what you have and that's what you spend. Uh, you don't complain and if you want something better, you work at it. So you learn the value. You think about you know, her in, in uh, law school making cl her own clothes. Uh, we were always eating at some cut rate. You know, it was this place had the, the deal. So my last two or three years, AAA, as a player and then three as a manager, you know, made 15 grand. And so being careful with that, uh, we were able to get through the winter, didn't incur law school debt, uh, just as long as we were careful, so. Your wife's eight months pregnant, um, and all of a sudden the, the phone rings and uh, a big move could potentially be in store for you. How does that upend your guys' world? I'd imagine she was less than thrilled at the time or at minimum conflicted. Um, well, the whole thing is a fairy tale. And we had already decided, you know, two, three years of, if nothing's happening, I'm gonna be a lawyer. You can't, they offer the job. Elaine's got, a, she's a, year, a month from delivering. We had already made plans to stay in Des Moines. Roland Hina GM calls at like one o'clock. In fact, she had just had an appointment with the doctor. We were having lunch. I called back. I thought they were gonna bring up the catcher. He said, no, we're gonna call a press conference at, uh, at three o'clock. And we're gonna announce you as a manager if you want it. If not, you have no knowledge three to accept. If not, we're gonna get somebody else. So I go back and I says, uh, guess what? It shocked her. I mean, I'm in shock. Um, we have a little different memory of that. I think she says that, that uh, she argued against it, but I, I wouldn't have, there's no way that I believe that because if she had said no, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have taken it. I think what, the, the truth is that she probably didn't want it to happen because she didn't want to be, you know, she's it's her first kid. It has a great ending though. At that point, just a few years before, there's this amazing group of ladies in Chicago that started La Leche League. So Mary White, who was one of the original seven La Leche League, contacts the White Sox. Her husband is Greg White, who was the physician that had all the expertise. So they meet Elaine, and Elaine meets La Leche League ladies. Dr. Greg White is the guy that catches Bianca when she's born. So it was, uh, it didn't make sense to move, but it had an unbelievable ending because Elaine got to meet these legendary ladies and, uh, and Dr. Greg White. And then a couple of years later when, when Devin was born, his son, Bill, Dr. Bill, he caught the babies. So it's impossible it could have happened the way it happened, but it happened. Why do you believe that if you were a better player, you wouldn't have been as good of a manager? Well, that's a saying. There's a saying that <clears throat> the worst players make the best managers. And there's a certain truth to it because if you survive as, as a player, it's not the most talented. You survive by really digging in and understanding the big and the little of the entire game. But what I've learned over time, and, and I'll give you the proof, it's not if you were really good or really bad, it's, it's how much do you love the game so that you wanna learn it. And there's a great 
legendary coach with the Cardinals, uh, George Kissel. Because my last year as a player coach, I was in St. Louis. And I told him that I wanted to manage. He said, well, you're going to be a lawyer, but if you want to be a baseball guy, how much do you love the game? And he gave me that, you love the game? I do. Then you got to want to learn it. And by the way, what happens, the more you learn, the more you love it. And that's an eternal cycle, which is absolute gospel. Your passion for military history, your wife sees connectivity between that and your role in leading a big league team. How about you? I was a reader early on, which led into this love affair that I had with books. During the winter, I read all nonfiction. I read as much about leadership as I possibly could. During the summer, I wanted to rest my brain when the game was over, read fiction, just... Well, if you read about leadership, the ones that have uh, the most impact, most impactful are military leaders. Because if you're the leader of a corporation, if you're the leader of a baseball team or a baseball or a sporting organization, what's at stake is success and failure, but it's not life or death. So if you study military leaders, it's amazing how their principles on how they preserve in, in our country American values and, and how they develop this brotherhood of, of, of fighting men who will do the thing for their country and for themselves, they carry over into managing a team or managing whatever or in your own personal life with your family. I don't want to sound like Lou Gehrig, but as a manager, there's nobody been luckier than me. I've, I've managed with three organizations. It was perfect. Hard work creates luck, too. No, no, yeah, but there are a lot of guys who work hard that are not supported. We were supported. Very, very fortunate. The other good fortune is when you're around as a manager for 30-plus years, you meet a lot of people. So I have this amazing group of military men. I still read as much about the military as I can. What are the qualities and actions, in your opinion, that make a good leader? They've changed with the times. If you want to lead today, you have to lead from a basis of personalizing relationships. The first thing we do is you create a relationship of respect and trust and caring between your, you and your staff and the players among each other. And it's like, you know, a family brotherhood. You know, the greatest coach in the history of team sports, Coach Belichick, what he does on the relationship basis, that gets established before you ever talk about, hey, this is how we practice, how we play. It, it really is. It's, it's common sense if you think about it and you understand that priority. But making it happen, you have to be real about earning respect. And you got to start at zero every year. You got to be very real about trust. If they don't trust you, they won't follow you. And you got to show them you care. If you do those things, that's why I'll give you a, a, a truism. The career wins, yeah, I enjoy them. The rings, I enjoy. The Hall of Fame, I enjoy. What I enjoy the most is that I have 33 years of brotherhood in Chicago, Oakland, St. Louis. And what that means, and I, I see it more now as I'm retired, I get around, when the players and those teams see each other, they embrace family. They see a coach, if they see me, we embrace, because we had that brotherhood. And that's why we had decent amount of success. Tell about, and this is just one example, once following reliever Steve Klein into <laughs> the shower when you were in your full uniform. <laughs> well, uh, part of earning respect is if, you know, if, if you tell the guys that we need to, here's what we're going to be. It's very easy. It's just a simple game. Our team against their team is score. That's what it is. 
you got to have maximum effort, and you just can't play hard, and you got to execute. So if you play hard and you execute, you should win. If you get beat, you tip your cap because they beat you. So the players have to see if you're asking for maximum effort and commitment. Well, as a coaching staff and a manager, you better do the same. So I was always, I had no problem getting in, getting fired up for games. So you always remember, too, that you're, you know, that you're the leader. And if you say something, you better stand behind it. Run the ball out. Somebody doesn't run the ball out, you've got to hammer them or explain, whatever. So we're playing the Cubs. Steve Klein is one of our favorite teammates of all our race. I mean, he's full of fun, great competitor. Signed autographs for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, he had, you know, he had, sometimes he was playing with 50 cards instead of 52. I don't know if he did it on purpose or not, but, you know, he's a little crazy at times. <laughs> well, um, and I don't blame him when I look back. It was the eighth inning, top of the eighth. We're playing in, in Bush Stadium's big crowd, playing the, the, the Cubs. And he's warming up, and there's a left-hander on deck, which means if I leave the dugout, Dave Duncan, the greatest pitching coach, when we weren't going to make a pitching change, he would go out and explain that whatever the strategy was. When I win, it's because I was going to make the change. So I go out, and Steve thinks he's in the game. But I went out there, once in a while when it was more strategic, I went out there and, and, and uh, you know, Mike Matheny's a catcher, and, and I forgot who the pitcher is, right-hand pitcher. Left-hand here is coming to bat. And I go out there and I basically say we've got an open base. So let's pitch around the edges, take advantage of his aggressiveness. And if he walks, don't worry, get the next guy. So I walk out, oblivious. We get the guy out. So the next inning, the top of the ninth score is tied. Top of the ninth, I bring in Steve. He gets three outs. We score in the ninth. We win. Hey, we beat the Cubs. At that time, in old, old uh, Bush, the, the uh, press conference was held outside the clubhouse. So I'm there, you know, all the cameras, you know, hey, how do you feel about this win? I mean, it's great. You know, hey, well, you know, tough win, man. The Cubs are good. Fans are excited. We're excited. Well, what do you think about what Klein did? I said, well, take my hat. You know, he got three outs in the ninth. I mean, he's a winning pitcher. He says, no, no. What do you did when you didn't bring him in? I said, what are you talking about? He said, he gave you the finger. I said, what? He said, yeah, when you went, he, he went there and just flipped you off. So I said, end of interview, and I go running in that clubhouse, where the f Klein? He says, he's in the shower. So I go in, you know, in my uniform, and Klein's there, hey, you know. I he looks at me, he says, hey, Skipper. He says, give me that, give me that finger that you flipped me off. I grab it like that, you know, and I'm just yanking at him. I said, did you write for me? He says, ah, yeah, man, you know. I said, what do you mean? I know. So I, you know, I got, I'm drenched and the guys are all laughing and Klein was laughing at first. He thought it was serious and he was oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. So that's what happened. You know, then I walked back out and pretty soon Klein comes out, I said, put on clothes and I want to see you like this. <laughs> that happened. So from then on, whenever we did a team thing, you know, you get a, I, I said, hey, here's Steve, the finger Klein. Why would you occasionally sleep in the clubhouse in the minor leagues if your team lost when you were manager? Uh, I did that more in the big leagues. In the big leagues? Yeah. Minor league clubhouses are not, not to be slept in. No, I, I did that more at home. Why? Well, there's sometimes you can't let the game go. Uh, sometimes by the time that you finally have, uh, you know, let the game get out of your brain, it's like 2 or 3 in the morning. You have, if there's a day game the next day, 
by the time you drive back, you spent the night. The really, you know, I've had some, you know, the, the thought, you know, this thing with no regrets. I've had a couple of bad examples where, you know, I realize, you know, you're really upset and you come home and you too quickly and you walk in the door and you haven't let it go. And I know there's a couple of times, you know, when our girls were little, you know, maybe while they were bathing or something, you know, and I was still, and, uh, what, and how would you get, or how would it come out? Well, because I, I would, you know, I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd be less impatient. Come on, let's go, let's go, but whatever. I, I, I wasn't. This is my time with you. It's, I believe me. I, it's not anything that I'm happy about. So there was one night that uh, I was calling, I was talking to Elaine, and I said, "Hey, I'm thinking about staying." And, and I heard one of the girls say, "Well, did, did they win or lose?" And I said, "If they lost, don't stay at the clubhouse." I said, "Whoops." That's when you start changing. Uh, uh, Elaine was telling me. You're a, a pretty tough person to be around when playing any game. She's like, it doesn't matter if we were playing pool or a board game. If Tony loses, if it's not an argument, it's a bad mood from that point forward. Uh, care to elaborate? Yeah, my elaboration is that she's more competitive than I am. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. She's a, she's a she's a competitor. So she if if I happen to win. Once in a while, these games, because she almost always beat me, um, she would get more upset than I did. It didn't happen as often because most of the time she beat me. And I was the one that was upset. 1992, your Oakland days that you're managing are playing the Toronto Blue Jays American League Championship Series. You mistakenly leave your daughters, uh, young girls. Um, what happened? I mean, I don't want to explain it in a way that I'm making an excuse because there's no excuse for it. So I'm saying that right ahead. It's a mistake that's unexplainable, inexcusable, screwed up. But, I mean, I got really into what the score was. And if there was something when the game was over that we got beat, that I felt that I had contributed to the loss by missing a trick or doing something that was wrong. And that night, you know, I was just... I messed up, whatever. I can't remember what I was, but I was just beating myself so much. You know, I get in the car, and I, I drive home, and I'm about halfway there. I went, forgot something. <laughs> Where were back, they? You know, back in the back of the ballpark. Well, probably the first, I'd say, seven, eight years of my career. I mean, I was, I was way too invested in trying to do the job right and carrying stuff to the point that. I have never forgiven myself, and I think they have forgiven me where I shouldn't have. I mean, I'd be home and just thinking about it and thinking about it. And, and if there's a lesson to learn there, you know, once you do the best you can, you got to turn the page. They're the priority. You know, this is the personal time. You know, put it away, stupid, and then I quit being so stupid. Well, how do you think back then it impacted the relationship with the daughters? Well, unfortunately, they probably got used to it, and, they, you know, then they expected less and, and uh, took it for what, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be, including Elaine, you know, and, and uh, try to make up for it ever since. With, um, your wife was telling me, and I don't know if it's just they do it as a joke now, but um, that on Father's Day, they will, yeah. uh, your daughters will send a card to your wife, Elaine. Sure. Why? Elaine did it by herself, basically, for 30 some years, and uh, I would, 
you know, I would, I, I can totally understand them thinking she was mother and father. You know, I think they were making a point of saying, we know how, how special you are. If you look at the number of hours that you have with that family, it's not very many. So you ought to maximize every minute of it, not do what I did, which was have half my brain there and the other half. I mean, Elaine would know. She's like, well, I know what you're thinking, but you think about your line or something because she could just see me glazed or something. And that, I say, that went on for, you know, seven, eight, nine years, just bad. Why do you think she tolerated it? I don't know, probably, you know, I mean, we did get married. I think she did love me and she knew I was doing something that, uh, you know, that I loved and looked like maybe, you know, we would have a, a good life. How would you best explain the sacrifice that she made? Uh, probably impossible for people to understand unless they take the time to think about 30 plus seasons starting in spring training, by the way. So it's like about eight months, depending if you play in October, where virtually every day it's you and your two girls with, with an occasional visitor who's your husband. So I regret that. And there was a couple, I mean, there's one in the book where she was sick, she had pneumonia, and the team was struggling and like an idiot. You know, my sister at that time lived in, you know, was living in Tampa and she came over and took care of her two kids. I mean, what, what, what kind of message is that? What's more important, Chicago White Sox or your wife and children? You bring up to her what you'd said to me about how, you know, she could have called you any time and uh, said, enough's enough, come home, and that would have been it. What do you think she said when I brought well, that up? At that point, she probably she, you know, I, I think they enjoy not having me around. That's probably the answer. Well, she goes, oh, bull, there's no way. What, that I would have left? Yeah. Oh, no, she's wrong. Um, no. Uh, if they said go, I'd have gone. Yeah. Um, I, but she also said, um, how many people in their lives are actually given the opportunity to live their dream? How could I possibly deprive them of that? Well, I, I, I know that that's true. She's expressed that. And uh, that's why, I, you know, I'll owe her forever. I believe it was the late 90s, you recognized like widespread uh, steroid use in the minor leagues and you yourself I believe addressed it with uh, no, minor league players. Big, in the big leagues. The first telltale signs were guys that were getting stronger very quickly. You saw them at the end of the season by the time of spring training or if they were getting stronger not working. When that was happening a bunch of us sent it upstairs. Upstairs sent it to Major League Baseball. Well the media is really punished C-Lig, and they punished a lot of us for not knowing more about it. What could you do? You pushed it up. The union said no. So, uh, you know, it's a really difficult area. It's an area that's not trusted. Talk about trust. Fans don't trust. Uh, they don't trust any of us. So what I'm telling you, you know, you can believe it or not believe it, but it's the truth. When we identified somebody on our club that we thought was using that stuff, we reported it. We did not accept it. All we know is Dave McKay ran a, a pure program in our, in our, no doubt in my mind, in anybody's mind. What you did on your private time, we don't, we're not policemen, we don't go watch them. I mean, you remember the, the stuff, you know, you get acne on your back, you know, you have potential impotency. 
That's why I, you know, one of my favorite examples to bring out is Mark McGuire, who's been, in my opinion, uh, very seriously tainted and unfairly. Uh, Mark agreed that he used a little bit for a short period of time. Most of the stuff that he used, that yeast extract, he used HDH for his heels. It was a prescription. Well, he's had five children, tri triplets and two boys, since he retired. What was the hardest part for you of watching McGuire testify on Capitol Hill? Trying to explain what he did, um, which in my opinion was a great majority it was legitimate, would not have gone over well. He just was not going to admit. He wasn't going to say that he didn't do what he did a little bit of. I also know that Mark is a very private guy, very uncomfortable in that situation. I felt bad for him because I know who he is and, what he, and uh, the quality of the man personally and professionally. I think it's a blip on the radar. And um, I say that and, you know, I've been accused of uh, blind eye, but I don't think so. So when looking at Hank Aaron's all-time home run record versus Barry Bonds or, you know, Roger Maris's single season home run, home run record versus what McGuire Bonds would have set its... Um, that's one of the favorite questions that you asked. When I see the home run hitters today, I think to myself, they don't understand the advantages they have and they don't appreciate the advantages they have to the disrespect generally of the history of the game and the great sluggers of the past. My point is Hank Aaron and whatever home run here you wanted to pick, in these days, under these conditions, would hit more home runs than these young guys are thinking they're, they're, they're uh, the gift to baseball. Is that still the record in your mind? I'm just saying, if, if those guys hit in these conditions, yeah. they would hit more. And, and the way that the ball is, and the type of ballparks, the type of pitching you face, uh, the type of, of uh, retaliation that you're not allowed. Hank Aaron would hit, would, would be the best home run hitter around today. Your fondest memory from McGuire's 70 home run seasons, what? Uh, I had a lot of, my number one impression was he got to 62 first and Sammy was behind him. As they got into the last month, Sammy took the lead going into the last weekend by one home run. That was one of the great, in my opinion, Michael Jordan, whatever sport, whatever clutch producer, McGuire's performance that last weekend hit five. Knowing if he didn't, how, it would have been humiliating to lose the thing. And I don't want to embarrass him. So by the time the night was where I said, Mark, get some rest. I'm going to write you in there, and I'm going to be watching you. If it looks to me like you're beat, I'll get you out of there right away, but you got to, I can't, you just can't miss that game. Bam! 69. So then he comes up in the seventh inning. He says, man, how much more? He says, okay, one more at bat. And I, when, you go, when you have it, go to first base, and I'll take you out of the people. Bam! There's 70. That's my number one Mark McGuire. During his time, starting out, Actually, it was happening with the A's, too, but more on that championship, you know, this 98, 99, 
2000, all that time, before he retired after 2001, 10, 15, 20,000 people came to take Washington betting breaks on the road. To him, it's like paying a doubleheader. He could have said, hey, you know, I'm going to rest in the clubhouse. He knew people were there to watch him. He would go out there daily, concentrate, and hit 15, 20 balls out of the park over the moon, come in, go out and play the game, play playing a doubleheader. That's the heart, integrity of this man. I'll say one more thing, because I want to get this guy in the Hall of Fame. I want people to know that not just the champion he is. At the end of the 01 season, he had 29 home runs and 300 at bats. Had a bad back. 29 and 300 at bats. They figure out during the winter he gets his back better. Bill DeWitt, the owner, gave him a contract for 15 million bucks a year for two years. That's 30 million dollars. Most guys sign it, and for two years they've done the best they could. McGuire turned the bases. I can't play to that level, Bill. Walked away from $30 million. Now, if that's not integrity, I, I, don't, I don't know one that is. That's Mark McGuire. Uh, your mom passed away at the height of McGuire's uh, record-setting uh, month um, in early September, which had to be challenging but between dealing with the family issues and being on a front-row seat uh, to history. And then fast-forward to... Uh, 2002, your dad passes away. Your pitcher, Daryl Kyle, passes away. The team legendary broadcaster and your friend, Jack Buck, passes away. It's the midway point in the season, and you're sitting at your desk. What do you do? The night that McGuire hit the home run against the Cubs, my mother was buried. And one of our owners, a really good friend, David Pratt, who's still my friend, had a plane. And uh, my dad says, look, when this thing in the service is over, you don't spend the time with the family. You get on that plane and get back for that game. So I was there, and I watched him hit the home run. Darrell was tied for first with the greatest teammates we've ever had. Thursday in Seattle, he's pitching, and he's struggling, and it's just, you know, he's not following the game plan. It's about the third, fourth inning, and I go out to get him. I'm thinking he's mad at me because I took him out. Now, I guess it be Sunday after the game. He's pitching Tuesday, I think, you know. So I called Daryl. I said, I want to see you in my office. He comes to my office. And I said, look, man, I don't know why you're upset at me. I mean, you were struggling that day. He says, oh, no, you don't understand. Not you. I'm so embarrassed with the way I'm letting my team down that it's hard for me to look at anybody. I says, Daryl, look, man, you're getting better and better. These guys love you. They trust you. Go out there Tuesday. Pitches a game. I mean, this is stuff you can't make up. Beats the Angel, we go into first place. Earlier that, maybe the day before, Jack Buck gets buried, and there's a picture of, there's Daryl in that front row. Fast forward, he dies on Saturday. His wife tells me, this one amazing lady, Flynn, man, I don't know what you told my husband. When he came back Sunday, he's a new man. So I think to myself, going back, suppose I'd have been stubborn and played the uh, leader card and say, hey, you know, if you don't want to talk, I don't want to talk. Then this guy would have died and not have known that conversation. So I look back and I think the value of personalizing a relationship when you're a leader, and it's the hardest way to lead because you've got to do it every day if you do it right. 
the value is not just you get guys to buy into team and play. It's that you build that caring and the respect and trust. If I had not been taught that that was a leadership role, I probably would have mugged that chance. Talk about regrets. That guy would have died without knowing what we all thought of him. So what about 2002? Oh, man, it was such a incredibly difficult year. Our guys were just in despair. We voted to play Sunday night because Daryl never missed a start. We played, the Cubs beat us. So we went through about 10 days or two weeks. The club was just, as a leader in our coach, you know, we're thinking, hey, man, I, I can't be yelling at these guys. I mean, these guys are, they're worrying about Daryl, they're worrying about the family, they're worrying about their own mortality. From the day he died to the end of the season, we won. His number is 50, we won 57 games and won the division. Now, that's, that's eerie stuff, man, but that's all true. We went against the Giants, and I was convinced that that team was destiny. We were going to beat the Giants. We were going to the World Series, and we lost to this day. The, the, the series in October that I most regret was losing to the Giants because our club deserved to keep going because we were dedicating it to Jack and uh, Darrell. 2006, you do win the World Series. Uh, you're in your office. Your sister comes in after that. Game five, World Series championship victory. You remember what she says? So, uh, something about my mom and dad, maybe? Uh, you're number one. Oh, yeah. That's what my dad would always say. Yes, yeah, so he always tell me how good I am. But you're the best. I said, well, dad, we're in last place by 10 games. So oh, you're still the best. <laughs> Baseball, back to Nashville. Uh, well, I got to be careful with that one because, you know, I'm employed. All I, say, all I said was, bringing baseball to Nashville. Yeah. You know, at some point, each, each, league, each league has 15 teams, and 16 makes sense. So there's talk of expansion, two teams. They're also talking about having to relocate a franchise. And they're looking at the different candidates. One of the places where I've met the people is Nashville. I'm, we've had incredible country music support. So I'm a great believer in what happens in Nashville, and I've seen them grow. If something happens where there's a you know there's an expansion possibility i think they would be to me a an outstanding candidate so i voiced that but this is where it's very important i don't do anything not anything i'm not, I'm not involved in any meeting i don't go anywhere where i'm actively involved with them i'm just a support i mean just i'm a believer in what they do how did the angels deal come about well you know i had one more year i had one more year with the with the red sox um, and they would like me to come back. Uh, the difficulty of coast to coast, you know, I did for two years. Your family is here and you're training in, in Florida. You don't ever get back. These two teams asked permission and the, the Red Sox said, we'd like to just stay, but we're going to grant permission. Uh, the Angels situation, I have great respect for, uh, for Artie Moreno and, and that team. There's some, there's a little extra responsibility as far as the advising part and, so I'm very fortunate that it worked out. You said the worst part about being upstairs now as an executive is the game starts and there's nothing you can do and it's a horrific feeling. Torture. Describe that. Torture. It's horrific, which is worse, horrific or torture? I think torture. When you manage 5,000 games, you always feel like you have responsibility. Maybe there's something you or the coaching staff can do to help put the players in a position to win a game. When you're upstairs, you can see the game, and you may have that idea, and you can't do anything. 
and uh, not going to manage, and I'm not ready to leave the game. So you sit up there and you take the torture. Somebody close to you told me you miss managing. Uh, how true? Uh, I, I, I missed the immediacy of the game. I missed the whole thing of pulling the team together from day one, making them a true brotherhood, competing to see if you can get to October and see how far you can get. I, I, I miss that. I miss the competition. But I don't miss it so much that I want to go back. I understand you might have come close this offseason to considering going back to managing. Um, Why did you decide against it? It's, it's not your age that dictates whether you should manage. We had a very proactive coaching staff, great coaches that really embraced information. We believe in its place. And what's happened is the game is being overwhelmed by percentages and numbers. And the value of the coaches, scouts, and observational analytics. You know, you watch and you see, it's being disrespected. So the game is really not as entertaining right now. Percentages don't take into account the head, the heart, and the guts of a player that day. So there are times you say, man, I, I, I'd like to get back and help correct the balance. That's, that's you know, sometimes you, after you watch a game, man, I'd like to get back because I know they're playing the game correctly. You, you'll win more than what they're doing now. But I'm not managing, so it's not strong enough to where I go back. Yeah, how close were you? Put it this way. Pitching coach Dave Duncan, greatest pitching coach in the history of the game. He's in Tucson. If, and I kind of ran by, hey, Duncan, you want to come back? He said, I can't. If Duncan said yes, then it would be possible. But Dunk said no. If he had come back, I'd have probably asked Arizona, let me let me take Dave McKay. We were Dave Duncan and I were you know, 29 years. McKay and I were 26. I would need that supporting cast like I always had. Believe me, I wasn't a good enough manager to do it without them. Thank you very much. All right. Appreciate you checking out my chat with Tony LaRussa. To see video clips of our time together, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Also, remember to leave us a rating and review. It helps a ton. Thanks again for listening.